Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Exodus. Exodus, you'll find in the early parts of your Bibles. Exodus chapter 15. If you're willing and able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Exodus chapter 15. Listen to God's holy and inerrant word. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You you send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. And all the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought, into the, brought back the waters of the sea upon them, and the, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. I wonder if you've ever thought about how weird the past 25 minutes have been. We took up something like this, an old, old book, and we read from it. And then we prayed these long prayers, and then we sang. Ponder just how strange it is that week by week, 
Christians here and around the world, one of the things we do is sing. Uh, One pastor has said, there is not another religion or another movement on planet Earth that does this, gathers together to hear preaching and respond with singing. Preach and sing, preach and sing. Muslims don't do this. Hindus don't do this. Buddhists don't do this. Sikhs don't do this. Judaism doesn't do this. Confucianism doesn't do this. When Apple unveils a new image of techno-religion, Tim Cook may preach, but the audience doesn't sing. Only Christianity does this. So don't miss out on this fact that what we have just done is actually quite strange and in one sense demands an explanation. Why in the world do Christians sing? Why all this music? Why, as Christians, should you sing? Because let's face it, some of you are here this morning and you don't maybe feel like singing. Maybe you feel a little self-conscious about singing out loud some of these songs. Perhaps you're here this morning carrying a burden and it's difficult for you to sing. It's difficult for you to sing, it is well with my soul. Perhaps you're filled with doubts and anxieties and you just don't feel like singing. Well, why should you sing? Why do Christians always sing and have a melody in their hearts? Well, as we return to our exposition through Exodus, the opening verses of chapter 15 helps answer that question. Why Christians, happy or anxious, sad or doubting, sing. Continue to sing. Now, I've outlined three reasons from our passage why Christians sing. Now, you'll remember last week in Exodus 14, we witnessed the power of God as he rescues Israel, rescues his people. Their backs were, again, if you remember, were against the sea. And here was the Egyptian army barreling down towards them. They were trapped. With no escape, nowhere to go, God intervenes. And what does he do? He parts the sea. He parts the sea and the water stands up like walls as they pass through on dry ground. And as they make it to the other side of the sea... The waters close in on their pursuing enemies. Judgment falls upon the Egyptian army. They are swallowed by the sea. And this was a defining event in biblical history. It's, in fact, so important that it's repeated twice for us. Once in chapter 14 and once again this morning in our passage, chapter 15. But chapter 15 is not a prose narrative. It is a poetic one. It's a song. And we might be thinking, what in the world is Moses doing here? Like, why this song? Why this poetry? Why this victory song? I mean, it interrupts the flow of the narrative. You can kind of get to the end of chapter 14, verse 31. And, you know, here are all these dead Egyptians on the seashore. They fear the Lord. And then you can skip down to chapter 15, verse 22. Israel sets out from the Red Sea and goes into the wilderness. That would make perfect sense. Why not do that? Why this interlude? Why this song 
First, God's people sing because God's salvation demands it. That's our first point. God's salvation demands it. Chapter 14 is a story of Israel's salvation, the passage through the sea, but that salvation always demands a response. A response of praise most suitably expressed in song. Therefore, a song is not only appropriate, but it is demanded. There's only one thing Moses and the people of God could do, and that is what verse 1 says. They sang this song. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song. We don't know who composed it. Uh, maybe Moses wrote something on the back of a parchment on, while they were on their way out. I'm not sure. I'm sure the sons of Korah were probably pretty good for some spoken word. But altogether, God put a song into the mouths of Israel. And we notice what happens to be some antiphonal singing. Uh, this is call and response, like kind of what we did with it is well when we were seeing that. It is well, it is well. Because we see at the end of the song, Miriam led the women with a tambourine and dancing and singing. Miriam, this prophetess, uh, Deborah, Huldah, Anna, are just some of the women with such designations in the Bible. This was a woman who declared the mighty works of God. And we see here her ministry is directed toward other women as she leads them out in singing. And apparently, they're all singing the same song. So perhaps what was happening was some call and response here. So perhaps all of Israel sings this song or they sing a verse, a section, and the women are singing in response. They'll sing just this verse kind of as a, as kind of a, uh, as a chorus. Perhaps all Israel sung together, and then later the women are singing back to them. And they were only given the first line of the song. But what's important for us to notice is what they're singing about. Look at verse 1. It says, I will sing to the Lord. This is almost, this is a cohortative in the Hebrew, meaning I must sing to the Lord. For he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider is thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength, my song. The Lord is my salvation. When God saves, his people sing. In fact, if you survey the scriptures as a whole, you will see again and again that in the mighty acts of God, there is a response of song and praise all the time. Job 38, 7 tells us that at creation, at the dawn of time, when all things were made by the word of God, it says, the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. When God saved his people from oppression in Judges 5, Deborah and Barak, they sing a song of victory. When God rescues David from the hands of Saul, what does he pen? He, he pens a psalm, Psalm 18. When God restores Jerusalem after they've been held in captivity in Babylon, what does Isaiah say about them? The ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, Isaiah 51:11. And of course, the time of Christ's coming. When every strand of God's purpose in history is starting to come together, we find an explosion of song. Luke 1, Mary sings. Zechariah sings. Jesus' birth, there's a choir of angels. Before Jesus goes to the cross, he's in the upper room with his disciples. What does he do? They sing a song together before they go out to the Mount of Olives. 
Hymns and doxologies fill our New Testament. They're scattered all over the place. Romans, Philippians, Jude, Timothy, Hebrews, and of course, song after song appear in the book of Revelation. The history of salvation, church, is not so much a drama. It's a musical. You see, Christians are a singing people in season and out of season, in tune and out of tune. Why? Because the truth of God's salvation is of such scope and joy that it cannot be contained in prose. It must be praised. We can't just say it. We must sing it. A commentator on Exodus 15 writes, the purpose of the prose account in chapter 14 is narration. The purpose of the poetic account is celebration. You march in chapter 14. You dance in chapter 15. There's a holy hush in chapter 14. You sing fortissimo in chapter 15. Music, you see, is a gift from God, isn't it? We know that there's a difference when UCLA finally scores a touchdown. And we don't just say, good job, UCLA. Good job in scoring a touchdown. No, we start singing. That's what we would do. We would start singing about the mighty Bruins and then we would clap and make these outlandish statements how we can never be defeated. And it is song that allows us to express our deepest heart responses to God and his truth in meaningful and memorable ways. It is a way for our hearts to join our minds and where we say, yes, yes. Jonathan Edwards writes, the duty of singing praises to God seems to be appointed wholly to excite and express religious affections. No other reason can be assigned why we should express ourselves to God in verse rather than in prose and do it with music, but only that such is our nature and frame that these things have a tendency to move our affections. So Christian, there is every reason for us to sing. As Ephesians 5.18 says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody to the Lord in our hearts. A child of God, you are saved by grace through faith through the Lord Jesus Christ. You're a a recipient of God's great redemptive work. And so you have every reason to sing sing. Our God is so valuable and beautiful, so multifaceted in his perfections, to not let it spill over in prayer and praise and and singing would be to stunt our worship of him. And even when we feel we cannot sing, when sorrows like sea billows roll, beloved, let the church sing for you when we gather. That's why we sing loud, so we can sing to one another. Let the truths we sing minister to your soul, because to God be the glory. Great things he has done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son, who yielded his life in atonement for sin and opened the life gate that all may go in. Wherever you might be right now, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the earth hear his voice. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let the people rejoice. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I wonder if you've ever thought about why you sing. 
perhaps you'd agree with me that music feels, I don't know, transcendent. We would say sometimes music is spiritual. Albert Einstein once told the young violin prodigy, after hearing him play, now I know there is a God in heaven. Einstein, who is not a Christian by any means. Steve Jobs, after hearing Yo-Yo Ma play Bach, teared up and told him, you playing is the best argument I've ever heard for the existence of God. Because I don't really believe a human alone can do this. Of course, you might deny that God exists. You might want some naturalistic experience, like understanding to understand who you are, that you are just a gathering of cells and energy. Paleontologist Stephen Jay Gould would say music is merely the unintentional byproduct of adaptive mechanisms in evolution. In other words, it's a spin-off of evolution, evolution, this music stuff of the evolutionary process. Your brain is just tricking you when you hear music into an experience. But could it be that music is pointing to something greater? Could it be that music and harmony and what it does to our feelings and emotions tells us that we are not just random collection of cells, but that we have souls. And as such, we crave meaning and we create meaning. We sing because God's salvation demands it. Second, we sing because God's character deserves it. That's our second point. If we examine the song in Exodus 15... As a whole, we will find that it is very difficult to organize. I spent a long time trying to look at it and organize it. I organized it one way, and then I looked at four different commentaries to see if they agreed with me, and they all disagreed with me and with one another. So I, when I first organized it, I, th- I thought, verses 1 through 3, personal praise. Look at all those I pronouns, like I will sing, I will praise. Verses 4 through 12, uh, their praises about God. That's how I kind of thought about it. And when he's done about what God's done in defeating Egypt. And then I looked at verses 13 through 18 and I said, hey, that just looks about God's dwelling place, his abode, his, what God will do in the future. But some would divide the psalm between verses 1 through 6, 7 through 11, and 12 through 16. Now they do it on some grammatical or what's called strophic reasons. So, uh, If you look at it, in those sections, each ends with a simile and then with a phrase, O Lord, Yahweh. Okay, so in verse 5 it says, like a stone. And then the section ends with O Lord in verse 6. Verse 10, they sank like lead. And the section ends with, who is like you, O Lord? And then verse 16, they are still as a stone. And it ends with, till your people, O Lord, pass by. Now, regardless of how you divide up the psalm, One of the things that's so frustrating about it is that it's not in chronological order and sometimes it overlaps and repeats itself. So as we look at the psalm, at this song, we can say, though, it is almost a virtual primer about the character of God, isn't it? So many characteristics and attributes of God are listed here. And I can I'm going to list five of them for you in this song. First, the people praise God as a personal God. Look at verse 2. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation, my God, my Father's God. I will exalt him. There is this intimacy and fellowship that is being announced here in this great and glorious God. 
And Israel has found salvation in him and has come to know him by faith. And so they set their testimony to music. And yet, as beautiful and profound as this is, it is nothing compared to the intimacy and fellowship and communion that we have in Jesus Christ. If by grace you trust in Jesus, God has sent his spirit to dwell in your hearts. And you have a communion that transcends anything that Moses could ever even guess at. Second, not only is God a a personal God, but God is a warrior God. In verse 3, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. And there are many things that you can say about God. You can call him king from the Bible, or father, or shepherd, or husband. There are many images that emphasize God's tenderness and his compassion. And we need all of those images, but we also need this one. That God is a warrior. He fights for his people. Pharaoh sent his best officers, his Navy SEALs, his Green Berets to attack Israel, and God defeated them, sunk them, it says in verse 4, into the Red Sea. The Lord, the man of war by his right hand, it says, shatters the enemy and overthrows the adversaries. He consumes them like stubble in verses 6 and 7. You see, God fights. He is a fighter. And his wrath and justice are sure. Now, this is a tough image for us. It's a tough image for us. The love of God is what we want to champion. The warrior God, not so much. But God is praised because he is the kind of God that brings perfect justice, judgment, and wrath. Vengeance is his, and he will repay. And we would do well to remember that God has fought already for us as well. He has done so supremely and climactically at the cross. There the wrath of God for our sins was laid. There he won the victory and disarmed the rulers and authorities, triumphing over them at the cross. Praise God that he is a warrior God. Martin Luther was right when he wrote the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Because did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the God the man of God's own choosing. You ask whom that might be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies is his name. From age to age the same, and what? He must win the battle. He must win the battle. Third, God is a mighty God. You see the boasts of Egypt in verse 9. I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. This comes in almost this staccato lines. And they capture the very essence of Pharaoh. Proud in his own strength, boastful. He's kind of like, him and the armies are kind of like, I got this. But you see the sheer effortlessness of God's response. Verse 8, at the blast of your nostrils, the water is piled up. Here is the supreme confidence of the Egyptian army. And what does God do? He sneezes. The blast of his nostrils. Not even a fair fight. Now, I heard this illustration from another pastor, but I wonder if you've ever tried to blow out candles, blow out birthday candles with your nose. Certainly, if it's your birthday today, please don't try to attempt this. It would be gross for everyone involved. It seems like a tall order, right? I mean, to try and blow out the candles with your nose, it's like you're probably sooner, you'd probably sooner singe your nose hairs than get it out. 
but the Lord sneezes and the Egyptians perish. Isn't he worthy of praise? To sing the mighty power of God that made the mountains rise, that spread the flowing seas abroad and built the lofty skies. I sing the wisdom that ordained the sun to rule the day. The moon shines full at his command and all the stars obey. That is our God. Fourth characteristics we see in this song about God. He is a unique God. Israel praises God for his uniqueness. Do you see that in verse 11, that question? Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? Awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? And the answer, of course, is that no one is like God. There's none like him. No No earthly powers, no angelic powers, not supreme court justices, not presidents, dictators, all of the above. Not any supposed gods and goddesses of the nations is like um, he's holy other, W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy other. And who is like you majestic in holiness. And you're wondering, why is this word holiness in here? Because the word holy essentially means separate, unique, distinct. We praise God as the doxology in Jude reminds us because he is the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord. To him be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time and now and forevermore. So we sing holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. Fifth and finally, God is a loving God. We've seen all these characteristics of God. He's a personal God a warrior God, a mighty God, a unique God. Here in verse 13, we see that he is a loving God. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed and guided them to your holy abode. That phrase, steadfast love, is that Hebrew word chesed. And you might know that word. Uh, You'll find Bible translations in the Old Testament grasping to try and do justice to that great word. Sometimes they call it everlasting love or steadfast love or covenant love and then sometimes they just mash two words together and create loving kindness as a word for to translate this but it speaks of that love of god which never ceases and mercies never come to an end and it is the redeeming love that reaches its zenith in christ with the son of god who loved him who loved us and gave himself up for me Church, God shows his love for us in this, that what? While we were yet sinners, he died for us. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure. That he should give his only son to make a wretch's treasure. Church, we will have another opportunity in a moment to sing after the sermon. And I think we should sing with gusto. We should be coming, running into church on Sundays, ready to sing, eager to sing, and not want to miss one verse. We should sing fortissimo, masks or no masks, in harmony or out of tune, in response to the glory and greatness and grace of God. We should fill our hearts and homes with songs that praise God for who he is. We should cherish and lean hard into our times of singing together. Lean hard into old songs and lean hard into new songs. Lean hard into the ones that are your favorites 
and lean hard into the ones that are my favorites <laughs> or other people's favorites. Sing because you've been saved by God that is majestic in holiness, awesome in power, and who is himself our eternal inheritance and delight. Again, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, I want to speak to you. I wonder what you've thought about our singing. I wonder if you've been rejecting God for a while now. But I wonder if you know the God that you're rejecting. Do these characteristics of God, are you, they just scratch the surface that we've just talked about. Do you know the God of the Bible? And do you know what God thinks about you? That's also in the Bible. He will not let your, your rejection of him go on forever. Do you know that he is holy? That he is just? And he will not let us get away with sin. Not, he will not let anybody get away with the sin. Justice is coming and his wrath is coming. And everyone will suffer his wrath because of who he is. Holy, holy, holy. And who we are. Sinners in need of salvation. But do you also know that he, in love, sent his son so that you can have a personal relationship with him? Do you know that? Come, ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. So why do Christians sing? I'll try to speed up here. Why do Christians sing? Salvation, God's salvation demands it. And God's salvation, God's character deserves it. That's what we've seen. Third and finally, God's promises drive it. God's promises drive it. Now let's take a look at verses 13 through 18. It looks forward to what God is yet to do for the nation of Israel. Now, if you're reading carefully, you'll notice that it's written in a tense as if God has already completed these things, right? Look at it. Uh, that God has already guided them to a dwelling place, his abode with him in verse 13. And same with what he says about the nations in verses 14 through 16. Philistia, Edom, Moab, Canaan, all the people Israel have yet to encounter, because right now they're still on the shores, on the way to the promised land of God, have already heard the reputation of Yahweh. It says they already fear, they already have terror and dread upon them, but this hasn't yet happened. Now, if you have an NIV translation of your Bible, it translates it all into the future tense. It says, you will lead the people. You will guide them. Nations will hear and tremble. Now, grammatically, if you're using the ESV, the, the translation is correct. But the way of speaking here is what's called the prophetic perfect. Because it uses past tense verbs about what is yet to come. It's spoken from the perspective of the future that the prophet knows for certain will happen. Israel has not yet begun to make their journey to the promised land. So they still have 40 years ahead of them just wandering. So there's still a lot of time. Yet Moses speaks of that journey with extraordinary confidence as if it's completed because he knows that whatever God begins, he will take it to completion. And God's great and ultimate promise is that he saves us to dwell with him. Look at verses 13 through 18. It really is talking about being with God. 
It says in verse 13, you have guided them by your strength to your holy abode, to your home, to your house. We've been singing about, oh, one day the, the, head scr- the, the, the clouds will be rolled back like a scroll and then we'll get to be with God, dwell with God. Well, verse 17, look at that. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place which you have been made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. Not human hands, which your hands have established. This is the place where the Lord will reign forever and ever. What is this mountain that he's speaking of? Is it talking about Mount Sinai? Well, that's not the permanent place. Is he talking about Mount Zion where they're going to build the temple? You know, that Solomon's going to build the temple? In a sense, it's all of those and none of those. Because all these mountains point beyond themselves to a heavenly reality. 2 Corinthians 5.1 says that there is a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. In other words, we will face the fullness of these promises in the new creation. And on that day when Christ returns, he will come down and be, and be the perfect and permanent sanctuary, sanctuary where we will dwell with him and where the Lord will reign forever and ever. That's what these verses ultimately point towards. Church, there is a future hope that awaits. And until then, we will keep singing his praises. We will keep singing, not out of our yearning for this world, but we are singing out of our yearning for what is yet to come. Right now, it's just dress rehearsal. Dress rehearsal for that day when we will sing a new song. You know, whenever I, I said this earlier, whenever God does something great, he deserves to be praised. And on that day, when Jesus comes again, God will bring sin to Bring, bring sin to judgment. He will take his children to be home, to live with him forever. And there's this passage in, in Revelation 15. You don't have to turn there. But it talks about the people on the edge of the sea one day in the future. And it's going to be still as glass. And it says they sing the song of Moses, referring to this particular song. And it says, they will sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Meaning, this song of Moses is going to be transformed into this future song of the Lamb. Saying, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Our singing now is mere rehearsal for the grand finale. So what are you thinking about these days? Uh, I don't mean to guilt trip you into, you know, oh, like I can't sing anything else. I'm not shaming you for having non-Christian music on your playlist. I have those too, believe it or not. But what do you sing about? What do you sing about when you're free to sing about anything? When you're in the shower, what are you, what are you singing about? What do you sing about when you're downcast? Sing about your salvation. Sing about God. Sing about the cross and the gospel. Sing now. Sing later. Keep on singing. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we give thanks to you.
and praise to you. And we ask, O oh Lord, that as we search the scriptures daily, that in our quiet times, as we read and as we pray, that it would no longer be quiet because we would be praising your name and we cannot help but when we see more of Christ and dwell more and meditate upon the glories of the gospel that we would sing. And, O oh Lord, even when sorrows like sea billows roll, we know that you have taught us to sing. It is well with our souls. So, Father, we pray that we could be encouragement even now to one another and that you would receive all glory and honor and praise as we come together and respond in song. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.